We are in a sermon series entitled Keys to the Kingdom, and it's based on 1 Peter. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And so we're just looking at his teaching and uh, using that key metaphor to look at each section of Peter's teaching. Last Sunday, we were talking about the Trinity key, and Peter did some writing there about each part that uh, a member of the Trinity played in our salvation. And so today is the hope key, but I want to start with a review of last Sunday, and I hope that you will remember what each one did. Uh, So I brought my little props that I had from last Sunday, and so hopefully this will help jog our memories a little bit. So this prop had to do with God the Father, and God the Father's part in our salvation was to what? Choose, to choose. Very good. Now this prop right here, the lightsaber, uh, had to do with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's role in our salvation was to what? The word that was used, sanctify. And because the root word is to cut and to separate. So we've been separated or set apart by the Holy Spirit. And then the third member of the Trinity is God the Holy Spirit. And we use the hyssop branch here, and uh, I mean, God the Holy Spirit. I should say, we say, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Now we're in God the Son. Uh, so God the, whole, the Son's role was to what? Uh, I heard somebody over here. Sprinkle. The sprinkle is blood on our hearts and purified our hearts. So there you go. My hope has been realized, and you have restored my hope in y'all's memory. Not everybody, but some of you. Remembered, so I appreciate that. So today, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about hope. Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl is kind of an autobiographical story of his experience in Auschwitz concentration camp. He, he survived that. He went on to write about it in Man's Search for Meaning. Part of what he said was, those who know how close the connection is between the state of mind of a man, his courage and his hope, or the lack of them, and the state of immunity of his body will understand that the sudden loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect. And his theory was, he went on to expound on his theory, on the high rate of death of prisoners in that concentration camp between Christmas 1944 and New Year's 1945. Because those prisoners thought for various reasons that they were going to be released and they were going to be home by Christmas 1944. So when that didn't happen, uh, they despaired, they were hopeless, and the death rate shot up between Christmas and New Year's. And he's saying, there's a, he, he theorized, he became a psychologist, he theorizes that's a close connection between our hope and actually our physical well-being. How's your hope quotient this morning? I mean, that's a rhetorical question, but how hopeful are you? Full of hope or less than full? How's your hope quotient? Are we hopeful or hopeless? Well, as Christians, we have every right to be hopeful. And we're going to delve into uh, Peter's teaching on this, do a deep dive. And my my goal is, I'm going to say five things about hope from what Peter writes My goal is not that we necessarily remember each one of those, but that we walk away with this impression that we are full of hope as Christians. Let's get those verses before us. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The hope that we have is a confident hope. That actually comes from the word for hope itself. In the original language, it's elpis, E-L-P-I-S, Greek. And what it means is a confident expectation of a future good. Right? That's, that's biblical hope. A confident expectation of a future good. And I want to zero in on that word confident. We have a confident hope. That's not always the way we use the word hope. I mean... Uh, somebody may say, are you confident you're going to win the Reader's Digest sweepstakes? Well, I hope so. The odds are approximately 150 million to one, but I did get a letter in the mail that said I might have already won. I have some family members who went to St. Augustine and they brought back a little souvenir for me and Tammy. They brought us some water from the fountain of youth. Yeah. So I'm going to be drinking this over the next few days and hopefully it will restore my youth when you come back next Sunday, you might find that I've got a head of hair that looks something like this. I mean, I hope so, but it's not exactly a confident expectation. But in contrast to that, the biblical hope that we have is a confident expectation. It's, it's very closely aligned to the word assurance. Why can we have this assurance? Why should our hope be so confident? Well, good question. Let's continue to explore. The hope that we have is confident because it is a living hope. Peter says, a living hope. God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is alive. It's living. It's active. In part, because it is founded, the foundation of our hope is the living God. Fifteen times in the Bible, our God is described as the living God. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 42.2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Jesus is the son of the living God. 1 Timothy 4.10, we fixed our hope on the living God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, a living and a true God. He is alive. He is active. He is interactive with us. He speaks. He works. He is the foundation of our hope, and He's alive, and so our hope is alive. And also, not just the living God the Father, but God the Son. And Peter says specifically, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So our Savior has defeated death. He's our ultimate enemy. 2 Timothy 1.10, Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Jesus says of Himself in Revelation 1.18, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, all of these verses in Scripture that stress our living hope, our living God, our living Savior are contrasted to dead, lifeless idols, idols, which are nothings. Jeremiah 10, 14, give me some examples. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false and there is no breath in them. Deuteronomy 4. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. 
Jeremiah, again, Jeremiah 10.4. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried. They cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. So much of the Bible is given over to convincing us to trust in the living God and not dead, lifeless idols. And not just old-timey idols like statues that they're describing there, although those are still worshipped in some parts of the world, but modern-day idols that try to take the place of our confidence and trust in God in this life. Things like money, things like greed, some, some things like popularity, things like you know, obsession with the body, our pursuit... Our treasure that we're seeking is, is the perfect body. And we'll do anything, we'll add anything, we'll cut anything, you know, to achieve that. Maybe influence. You know, our goal is to be the next TikTok influencer. Now, whatever that may be, those treasures always disappoint. Forrest Finn. That name strike a bell for anybody? Forrest Finn. A decade ago, eccentric millionaire Forrest Finn hid a treasure chest containing gold and other valuables estimated to be worth a million dollars somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. Not long after, he published a memoir called, quote, The Thrill of the Chase, which included a mysterious 24-line poem that, if solved, would lead searchers to the treasure. Finn had suggested that the loot was secreted away at the place where he had envisioned Lying down to die back when he believed a 1988 cancer diagnosis was terminal. Since the hunt began in 2010, thousands of searchers have gone out in pursuit and the chase became an international story. That treasure chest was found last June by a 32-year-old Michigan native, a medical student named Jack Stuth, who had been searching for it for about two years. However, over the last five years, five people have died searching for that treasure out in the Rocky Mountains. And Jack Stooth, although it's been a year since he found and discovered that treasure, he's being sued by many people, but one is a Boston real estate agent who claims that he hacked her texts, he hacked her emails, and found her solve, and that's how he found the treasure. So although it's been a year, he hasn't been able to benefit from any of that treasure, all that glitters is not gold. We pursue different things. We think they're going to give us the ultimate happiness. And ultimately, they cannot. Only our living God and our living Jesus Christ can. And so our living hope is founded on them. All right, we're saying different, five different things about this hope. The second thing was that it's a living hope. The third thing that Peter says is that our hope is an enduring hope. It's an enduring hope. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So what is that hope? Now, it's not a physical thing. It's not like gold or silver or anything like that. It is the eternal life that we're going to experience with God in heaven. Right? That's what we're looking forward to. It will not fade. And that includes our enjoyment of it. We're never going to get to where all oh, the grass is greener on the other side when it comes to this inheritance. You know, you may or may not have received or look forward to a physical material inheritance in this life from your parents or some rich uncle. I'm 
My kids aren't. I should put one of those bumper stickers on the back of my car that says, I'm spending my children's inheritance or my grandkids' inheritance, such that it may be. But we all, as Christians, do have this inheritance to look forward to. It cannot be taken away, and it will not fade, and that includes our enjoyment of that inheritance. So it wasn't long ago, just a couple of weeks ago, one of my grandsons came to me. He's 10, and uh, he had this very worried look on his face. I said, Carson, what's wrong? And he says, yeah, I was thinking about heaven. I said, yeah. And he says, it lasts forever, right? Heaven is forever. I said, yeah, heaven's eternal. It's forever. He said, aren't we going to get bored living forever? Well, that's a pretty good question for a 10-year-old. Other people may have thought of that. Uh, so who was the oldest man recorded in the Bible? Who was the oldest man? Methuselah. That's right. How old was Methuselah? That's right. 969 years. Methuselah lived to 969 years. We read about him in Genesis chapter 5. There in Genesis chapter 5, there, it lists five other men who lived into their 900s. And a lot of people who lived to be 800, 700, really kind of old. Uh, so I reviewed that chapter. You know what I didn't find? I didn't find anywhere in there where any of them got bored with life after almost a thousand years of living. Maybe they did, but it doesn't say that they did. Now we understand this concept of boredom. We can relate to that, but a lot of it has to do with the bodies that we're living in. Yeah, and these bodies, as they get old and deteriorate, and this world, as the more we see it for what it is, you know, the less of a draw that it has. But in new bodies, and a new heavens, and a new earth, things are going to be different. I like the way G.K. Chesterton puts this. Now, he writes this about God, but he says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. You take the sin out of the equation. You take the curse out of the equation. It's very likely, as we're enjoying our inheritance of eternal life on the new heavens and the new earth, every day will be brand new and full of excitement. And we will never grow old or bored or tired of that inheritance. It's an enduring hope. Fourthly, Peter teaches, our hope is secure. It's a secure hope. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. That eternal life 
It's like it's in a safe there in heaven. And it's being watched over by God. You know, stock market crash cannot take this away. That, that, that kind of thing does not affect God. And it's not just our treasure that's being guarded and safeguarded. It's we ourselves. It's we who are being shielded by God. Now, shielded by God is actually a military term. It's like when a military is guarding either a, an object or a person or a group of people. And the picture here is that we have our enemies and our spiritual enemies and that God is shielding us and guarding over us. He's watching us and helping to make sure that we make it to our inheritance. No one's going to be left behind by God. None of the, none of the citizens of God's kingdom are going to be abandoned by him. He's not going to cut and run from any of his soldiers of his kingdom or any of his allies. And only God can make and keep a promise like that. And that should be very reassuring to us, and especially in times like this. Now, now we should qualify. We're, we're not talking about God protecting us from physical problems or difficulties or suffering. I look around here, we've all lived long enough to know that's the case. We as believers, we're still subject to accidents. Sometimes our bodies are broken. Sometimes they don't recover to the way they were before. Or we're subject to viruses and illnesses and loss and grief. Sometimes agonizing suffering. And we all have to pass through that portal of death. So there's a, there's a plane here where we experience those things, but the hope we're talking about is on a higher level. So that no matter what we're experiencing here on this level, up here in the area of ultimate things, God is watching over our inheritance and he is protecting us to ensure that we make it. He's guarding us. Now, does that mean that once you become a Christian, you can never lose your salvation. You know, a lot of people believe that. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Once in grace, always in grace. Or it's called the doctrine of eternal security. You're saved. You can never lose that salvation. Uh, Augustine taught this in the fourth and fifth centuries. It was brought into Protestantism by John Calvin during the Protestant Reformation. All Calvinists believe you can't lose your salvation. Most Baptists believe that. Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily what Peter is teaching here. We don't have to overstate the case. And there's two words in this verse right here that would really indicate the opposite. Where Peter says, your inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith, those two words, through faith are shielded by God's power. Now God shields and God saves and God rescues, but we are saved by grace through faith. And the faith is our part. And as long as we hold on to and maintain that faith in God, then God will shield us and protect us. God holds our hand all the way, but we must hold God's hand as well. Oh yeah. Uh, it's possible to lose your salvation, but frankly, it's a lot harder than many Christians think it is. I like the story of the jogger you know, he, was, he had a route, and his route took him through a graveyard. Most of the time, that was fine. He liked it. It was kind of peaceful and all. 
But he was running a little later than normal one evening, and it started to get dark. And he didn't realize that they had dug a, a grave to be used in a service the next day. So it was kind of an open pit there in the graveyard. So he's running through. He didn't see it, and he fell right into that grave. He's scrambling to get out. It's too steep. He can't get out. So he, he just resigned himself to spend the night in that pit, and he sat down in the corner. About an hour later, another jogger comes running through. He makes the same mistake, and he falls right into the pit. And he starts scrambling to get out. Now, it's pitch dark by now. And he can't get out until he heard a voice from the corner of the grave that said, you can't get out of here. But he did. It's possible. Yes. Is it possible to lose your salvation? Right. It is. But when you commit a sin, you know, if I commit a sin, if I have some compromise in my life, if I fall short in some way, I've lost my salvation. You have lost your salvation. We believe, we repent, we confess Jesus as Lord, we're baptized into Christ in the position of salvation, and we stay in Christ, covered by His grace, until or unless we lose our faith. Lose your faith, lose your salvation. Reject that faith, it's intentional to where a person says, you know, I don't believe anymore. I'm not trusting in Jesus anymore. Well, then we've taken our hand out of God's hand. But anything short of that, and we're still kept, God is going to be working and protecting us from our spiritual enemy who would try to get us to renounce Christ, shielding us by his power until we reach our inheritance. So it's a secure hope. And then finally, it is an anticipated hope. It's something we anticipate and look forward to, ready to be revealed in the last time. Think back to when you were a child, and it's Christmas Eve. And you can barely get to sleep because you're anticipating the next day. All those presents and all those toys. That attitude of anticipation. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.9, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. I don't know if you've gotten to this point. But I've gotten to the point where the longer I live and the more I see this world for what it's really like and all the injustice and the pain and the suffering, the more eager and anxious I am to go home and anticipate that reward. That's our hope. Viktor Frankl wrote about those who lost all hope because they thought they'd missed out on Christmas. We're not going to miss out on Christmas, on all that God has in store for us. When we close our eyes on this side and open them on the other side, it's as if God has his, his hands over our eyes like a little child, and he's going to open them up, and he's going to show us all that he has prepared for us. We're going to enjoy our inheritance forever and ever. And when we've been there 10,000 years, as the song says, We've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. What well, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. I hope we leave today with hearts that are hopeful. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, I know every person in here has a burden of some kind. We have some challenge in our lives now, down here on this level in which we live. I pray to God today as we reflect on the words of Peter, that we can remember that we have a, a secure hope in heaven, something to be anticipated, something that can never, ever be taken away from us, watched over by you and secure through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our trust and faith in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.